So I want you guys to think about a story that I heard not too long ago from a friend of mine who is actually a campus minister at uh, the at Mississippi State University. His name is Brian Sorgenfrein. Brian tells a story. Imagine for a moment that you were a parent and that you're walking along with your toddler daughter and all of a sudden she literally vanishes, gone. You look around, you can't find her, you can't see her, you don't know where she is, but right where she was, you see a massive hole in the ground about 18 inches around. Well, that is a true story that happened about three years ago. I don't know if I'm pronouncing this, this county right, in Pinal County, Arizona. And here's what happened. The girl just disappeared, but it gets worse. What had happened was she had stepped on a lid to a septic tank and she fell all the way in through the lid and fell right into and began to sink into, well, you know what's in septic tanks, raw sewage. And she was stuck and she was unable to get out. Now, why do I start there tonight with you all? I want you to see that Judges 2 actually comes to us and tells us something very similar about every single one of us. That Judges 2, it serves as this second introduction to the book. And it's going to lay out a pattern that we're going to see tonight that will carry out for the rest of the book. And it's going to show us this, that God's people, God's people really are stuck in their own filth. And though he has rescued them, they run away from his grace. Though he saves them from their problems, they go right back to their muck. And again, these are not non-believers. These are his people who he has already rescued. And y'all, I think this is profound because I think if you were to think about your life, if if you would get honest for just a moment, I think that you would say, you know what? That story sounds a lot like my own. You know, how... How do you think that this actually ever plays out in your life? I don't know, but I can guarantee it goes something like this. That somewhere, somewhere along in your life, you have found yourself doing something, participating in, believing something that you swore that you would never participate, do, or believe in. And then you've actually changed your mind, and then you've gone back to it. And it's like an endless cycle. And I bet for some of you, you know what it's like to be to be trapped inside of that and want to get out. And I just want to suggest to you tonight that Judges chapter 2 meets all of us and addresses that. I think it's beautiful. Because I think if we're honest, that Judges chapter 2 is going to show us that our hearts, we really are, that, that we would love to be miserable wanting all of the wrong things. But that's really where our hearts are at. And that's going to take something from the outside in to come and to set us free. You see, Steve Jobs says this, follow your heart. Hamlet's Polonius says what? To thine own self, what? Be true. Well, the problem is this. What happens when your heart is cattywampus? When it can't be trusted? Then what? Right? Well, I think that tonight we're really going to be able to understand a little bit more about God's grace. And let me just push pause here for a second. Usually... I'll spell out like three things and tell you the three things that we're going through. I'm not doing that tonight. So you have to really pay attention. Instead, we're going to take ourselves through a story and a series of 
different acts, as it were. So here's kind of this first question. How could a people who were rescued by grace turn their backs on the one who rescued them? How could a people who were rescued by grace, who saw last week, turn their backs on the one who rescued them? Well, let's take a look. Look at verses 11 and 12 here in the text. You'll see it there. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. You know, I think this is really telling us something impressive about our own hearts. And that is that we, doesn't matter who you are, that we are actually people who are longing to have our heart's longings met. Now let me, let me see if I can illustrate. Let me talk to you just about this for a second. Look at verse 10. If you have your Bible, verse 10 says it. If you don't have your Bible, I'm going to have to read it to you. Verse 10 says this, that there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord. Now, every, every commentator will say, it's not that they didn't know, know about him. It's that, he had, that the people had moved into a place where they had forgotten, that they didn't know intimately. They didn't know with the heart who God was, that they had given up on Him, they had turned away from them. And then also in verse 12, you see it there, that they had abandoned Him. But here's what's really interesting. It's not as though the people had abandoned Him by like killing a lot of people. It wasn't like that was the problematic thing. It wasn't like they were stealing stuff. If you look at the text, it says this. It says that they were serving the Baals. Now you go, what in the world is a Baal, right? Let me tell you. A Baal was the Canaanite was a Canaanite god. It was a foreign country's god, and the Baal was a was their storm god. And you'll see it later in the text too. Ashtaroth was another Canaanite god, and that was the god of fertility. And what had happened was that God's people had now begun to mix worship of Baal and Ashtaroth along with the god of Israel, Yahweh. They had turned their hearts away to these other gods. Now, why is that significant? Because of this. Because those gods were the gods of fertility and of, of, the, of storm, of harvest. And y'all, if you were living in that society, your food, your food was your money. It was your provision. It was the thing that provided for your life. And if you didn't have children, guess what? You were seen as nobodies. Because you couldn't keep up your line. Your family would die. That was very, very important. Now, why is that important? Like, what, what significance does this have? Here's the point. I want you to see that what has happened, that the abandoning of the Lord is actually, is actually this, that they have turned their hearts away from God by worshiping idols. Now, why is this significant? I want you all to know that when we think of idol worship, I-D-O-L, we typically think of like little statues like this. And we think of people bowing down to or lighting candles in front of little statues like this. But I want you to take a look at what the Bible says in Ezekiel chapter, uh, there's a great passage in Ezekiel chapter 14 that talks about this. It says these men, here it is, that these men have taken their idols into their hearts. In other words, idolatry is primarily about the heart. It's about our worship, as it were. Now, this is where it gets really, really important. I want you to understand tonight that what is happening is that these people have given their hearts over to other gods. Why is that significant for you and me? Y'all, because we are just like them. 
we will find the 5,000 other things to give our hearts over to. Listen, you may say, well, you know what? I'm not really a religious person. And so therefore, I don't really worship because that's what religious people do. And I want to say, I hear you. I hear you. But if you understood what the Bible was talking about when it says worship, it actually is not necessarily talking about religious ceremony that that idea is included. When the Bible talks about worship, it's getting you to deal with the question of what do you make most significant in your life? And y'all, that's something that all of us do. Think about it. What are you living for? What is giving your life meaning? What is giving your life definition? What is the thing that you wake up for every day? It can be anything. For most of us, it looks something like this. It looks like power, comfort, control, or acceptance. Power, comfort, control, or acceptance. My little pet idol is people-pleasing. Okay? I want people to like me. My life rises and falls on who is happy with me and who is disappointed with me. Sadly, as a 40-year-old person, I still struggle with that. But what is it for you? You see, for some of you, I think it's actually this idea of having control of your life. That you want to know what the future holds and you will do anything to make sure that you can maintain your grasp on your future. For others of you, I think it's about acceptance. It's relationships, right? That you don't know what to do that if you don't have, the, if you don't have a lover's embrace. That if you're not finding somebody that you can say, this is my boyfriend or this is my girlfriend or if I can't be hooking up, then I'm a nobody. For others of you, it has to do with the idea of making money. That life is all about the dollars that I can make. And if I can't make money, then I'm not a significant person. Here's what I want you to see. When the Bible is talking about worship, it isn't primarily speaking. It isn't first speaking about the songs that you sing. And if you go to RUF or if you go to church, it's concerned with what you love. It's concerned with what your heart wants. That, my friends, is what worship is all about. And so the question really does come. The first thing that we see God's people did is this, is they took idols into their hearts. That's exactly what they did. And by doing so, y'all, they opened themselves up to something far more sinister and worse than they can ever imagine. What do I mean? Well, what happened when they took these idols into their hearts and thus abandoned the Lord? Let's take a look. Do you see it there in verses 13 through 15? They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers. And I'm skipping down to verse 15. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned. And the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. First, a caveat. When you read that, you ought to feel uncomfortable. You ought to go, that text seems to be saying, Ryan, that God himself was doing something to the people that he promised he would love. And you know what? That's an appropriate way to read that text. And you know what? I'm not going to deal with it tonight. So you have to come back next week because it touches more on it next week. And I'm just going to save that theme for next week. It's a big deal, so come back, little teaser. But tonight I want to show you this. I want you to see what happens when their hearts were opened up 
to the idolatry of themselves. And here it is. They all, they became slaves. And that's, the, that's they're showing you a deep principle. Other people groups took them in. That when they began to open up their hearts to the worship of these other gods, they assimilated with other cultures. These cultures began to flip it on them. And they now began to enslave them and to, and to, and to own them as themselves. You know, that's a big deal. Because that's exactly telling us what idols in our lives do. That you, some of y'all know this. You know what it's like to be a slave to those idols that I've just talked about. See, here's the amazing thing about idols. They're always good things. There is nothing wrong with sex. God made it. He delights in it. It's only when sex becomes an ultimate thing that it becomes problematic. There is nothing wrong with money. It's only when money becomes an ultimate thing that it becomes problematic. There is nothing wrong with power, believe it or not. It's when power gets corrupted and it's used to suppress and to harm other people. You see what I'm getting at? But here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that any idol, it makes promises that it cannot keep. It promises you life. It promises you happiness, right? It says, you know what? Come to me. Come give yourself to me. And if you do... I will make your life happy. And I want you to see tonight that idols are like drinking salt water for your thirst. When you take them in, it what? It only makes you more and more thirsty. They can never provide. Think about this in particular. I was reading an article about porn the other day. And here's the thing. Fellas, you're for once off the hook because it wasn't about y'all. It was about the ladies. There's a writer. Her name is Jessica Harris beggars, I think is her last name. And she talks about how, uh, how it's not just guys who struggle with porn. And the idea is, is this, that how many times do you, do you promise, I'm, I'm widening the scope now, so ladies, you're out from underneath the thumbnail. But um, the, the, the picture is, is that how many times do you swear, I'm just never going to do this again, and, you're, and you find yourself caught in its grip. You know what that means? It means you've been made a slave to it. You swear it off for the thousandth time. Y'all, that's what's happening in our hearts. It's what's happening to our hearts. And I want you to begin to see it's not just with porn. It can be with anything. It can be your grades. Think about it like this. Why is the A never enough? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, even if you made 100 on the test, guess what? There's still another test. There's still another course that you have to take. And even if you graduate... Summa cum laude, with a 4.0, guess what? You're now going out into a workforce. And you know what? There's always going to be people better than you. And you just get on the performance treadmill where you feel like I am nobody if I'm not at the top of my game. And I want you to, be, to dare to believe that the gospel frees you from that. We're going to see why in just a minute. But what I want you to feel and sense now is the real slavery and the real helplessness that comes from when our idols put their boot on our neck. Because if you're anything like me, you know what that's like. You know what it's like to be owned and to be enslaved to our idols. Y'all, um, how many of you have ever seen the movie? I know if you've come to my house, you would have had to. Uh, it stars Anna and Elsa, Frozen. Um, here is Elsa. She is singing about how free she's going to be, right? And what is she doing as she is singing about her freedom? Does anybody remember? She's building an ice castle. 
locking herself in. I love that picture. I'm going to be free. I'm going to be the master of my own fate. I'm going to be the one that's in control. And you know what it tells us? That when you do that, you're just encaging yourself. You're imprisoned. It's, it's sinister, isn't it? So here's my question. What do you think is ever going to be able to help us? Listen, when God's people took idols into their hearts, something else happened. Here it is. That when God's people took idols into their hearts, the idols took their hearts. They took them over. And the question I think we need to ask ourselves tonight is how, how will God be able to demonstrate His love to people who constantly turn their back on Him over and over again, who over and over find themselves, metaphorically as the text tells us, whoring around with lesser lovers and gods? How will He not be done with them forever? And y'all, here's where the amazing grace of the passage comes in. It's very simple. It's that God delivers stolen hearts. That these hearts right here, that God rescues. He comes in. You see, what man could not do for himself, God in His kindness comes to us and rescues and liberates us. That when we were trapped and helpless, God comes in and delivers. Do you see it right there? It's in the text. It says that the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them in verse 16. Now, when you think judges, this whole book obviously is about judges and it's not about like uh, Supreme Court judges. You've got to get that idea out of your head. You've got to think like military hero, um, you know, guy who comes and kind of liberates his people. That's what, it, that's what it means to be a judge in this sense, okay? So you're going to hear like war heroes, and that's kind of the idea. And the idea is, is that God raises up these judges, and he actually delivers them. He, he helps them out of their misery. He, he's always doing what he's always done. And that is, is that when people, when his people are helpless... He delivers them. He catches them in their slavery and comes and liberates them. And y'all, I think this is the thing that you need to understand. Is that I want you to see the real grace on display in this passage. Look down here. Is that they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. And then in verse 18, I love this. When the Lord raised up judges for them, The Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. And then listen to this. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groanings because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. You see, I want you to see the the God of the Bible coming and entering in and rescuing trapped people. I want you to see tonight in this text something incredibly profound that God's heart is moved by our misery. Do you get that? That God is moved by our misery. When it says His groanings, this was interesting. We think, they're like saying, we're sorry, hush, we're so, so sorry. Oh man, please help us. That's not the word that's being used there. The groaning is like, uncle, we, this is painful. They're not, they've not turned to Him. Guess what? What's so beautiful about this is that these people still don't want God. Think about that. Think about that. God wants people who don't don't want Him. 
And I want you to understand this, that if you are a Christian tonight, that what saved you was not you wanting God. God always came to you when you didn't want Him. And He changed your heart so that you would. That's beautiful. Because it means that not even you wanting Him is what saves you. It's God and His compassion that reaches down into your life and rescues people who do not want Him. And I think that's brilliant. Why? Because y'all need to know that, I, that some of you in this room think that God is done with you. You look back at your track record, you look back at your life, and you go, I never thought that I would be this sort of person. I never thought that I would come to college and live like this. Surely God doesn't want anything to do with me. Judges chapter 2 tells you otherwise. That God's grace always breaks in. It always comes home precisely to people who have turned their back on Him and who don't want Him. That's exactly what God does. And y'all, I just... The picture needs to be drawn home even further, so we're going to go there. The imagery given is one of whoredom. He's talking about sex. And I just want you to see this. That, that the Bible is saying that when we turn our hearts on, away from God, it's as if we are running to other lovers. The prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Ezekiel talk about this in pretty graphic terms. And if you ever want to know about it, I can tell you about it. But the picture I want you to understand is this. Think about it in illustration. Imagine a husband whose wife, um, whom he had loved for 20 years, he finds out one day through a series of emails that she has been having an affair. She's been having an affair with someone for years. His heart ought to be broken. His heart ought to be moved to jealousy for the woman that he loves. And imagine somebody coming up to him and being like, man, I'm just so sorry. I'm so broken. I'm so sorry to hear of your pain. And imagine him saying something like this. You know what? You win some and you lose some. And uh, it's just the way the cookie crumbles. It's really not that big of a deal. What would that tell you about that man's heart for that woman? You all know it. You'd be like, what? What? No, 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 no. You see, jealousy is always the flip side of exclusive love. It always is. If you truly love somebody, if you're truly committed to somebody like that, you will do anything to bring that person back home. And that's what Judges is showing us. That God in His grace goes after people who have scorned Him and who have spiritually, metaphorically given themselves over to other lovers. And y'all, I just want you to let that sink in. That we are the bride that has run away from our husband. And he comes after us time and time again when we don't want him. When we've given our hearts over to these vast array of idols. And he comes back in and he rescues us. It's like he's walking in on us as we're underneath the sheets with our lover and says, come home. I'm here. I want you back. That's the image that he does. Why? And I love this picture because, fourthly, the sort of fourth move in the text, 
is that God's heart is taken with us. He loves his people. And therefore, I just want to ask this question before we kind of close tonight. I want to ask this question. If this is really the case, that if his love gives rise to that, if it, if it, if it, if it does that to us and for us, what was God's saving grace meant to do in their lives as well? Well, you see it there, and this is where we're going to close our time. God's love was meant to draw them into Himself and actually change them. It didn't. Because we're going to learn throughout the book of Judges, they constantly run back. They constantly give God the finger. They constantly turn back on Him. They're basically saying, thanks God for nothing. I want to do what I want to do. Does that sound familiar to any of you? It does for my heart. And God keeps coming back. His faithfulness is through the roof for us. And it's meant to change you, y'all. It's meant... See, if you're a Christian tonight, I just want you to maybe start examining where have I scorned the love of God and am I doing my own thing? And where might you be drawn back into into faithfulness to Him, into, into walking with Him. This has ethical implications for the way that you live your life. And here's what I want. I don't want you to be guilted into some moral behavior. I don't. It won't work. It never works. The only thing that will ever change your heart is if you see God loving you at great cost to Himself at great pains to himself, him loving you. And do you know where we see that most poignantly? We see it in what the judges point us to. To the day that there will be one who comes who will give his life for you. Who will take on all of the sorrow and all the shame that you create. He will bear that for you. And He will come. And He will come and rescue you. Who am I talking about, y'all? Of course I'm talking about the person and the work of Jesus. You see, judges in, a, in very, very many real ways. It always leaves us empty-handed. It leaves a gap. It leaves us begging and longing for a better judge to come and finally really deliver His people. And my point is, is that I want you to see that Jesus... Jesus is the one that does this. He is the one who comes. Listen to what one um, Bible teacher says. His name is Ralph Davis. And he says, The Bible is clear. Amnesia produces apostasy. Let me unpack that and why it's important right now. Amnesia means to forget. And what these people have done is they have forgotten God's love for them. They have forgotten what He has done. They have forgotten how much He cares for them. And it's led them to fall away. And so I just want to say, maybe the place that you can start tonight is you can remember. That remembering is a spiritual exercise. And we desperately need it. We desperately need it every second of the day. Listen, I love what the old uh, reformer Martin Luther said. He used to preach the gospel every week. And there was an old woman in his congregation who said, Doctor, why do you keep telling us about the gospel every week? And you know what he says? Because, my dear woman, you forget it every week. And when you begin to live this, when you begin to live this out, I'll quit preaching it. And he never did. Because we always forget. Y'all, I just want to say, maybe that's one small thing that you can do practically, is that you can begin to remember all that God has done for you.
Well, lastly, this is the last thing that we're driving home. This kind of closes us up. He does that so that our hearts might be taken with him. That's the point I'm trying to make, is that God's love for us would beget love in us for him. Well, y'all, when that little girl fell into the sewage that day and was literally drowning in feces, something amazing happened. One man who saw it rushed over, and you know what he did? He jumped in to the septic tank. And when he couldn't pull that little girl out, he climbed out of the septic tank, and he went and grabbed another person. And another person, he was holding on to this person's legs as this other man reached down and pulled this little girl out of this raw sewage, her body lifeless. As they lay the three-year-old down, a bystander walked up, a woman in fact, and she began to do the unthinkable. She began to administer mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. She literally was breathing and taking in the funk out of her lungs and breathing life back into her. Y'all, do you see the gospel yet? Do you know what Jesus does for you? He is the one who comes in and takes your filth and gives you new life and breathes new life into you by His Spirit. And He does it, y'all. This is where the story doesn't go. He doesn't do that at the risk of His life, but at the cost of His life. Do you see the difference? You know what the difference is between risk and cost is, right? And I think that when you begin to see Jesus doing that for you, you begin to see what I'm trying to drive home tonight is that God delights to rescue His people from their sin and misery. He loves to do it, y'all. That's what He's all about. And nothing will ever stop Him from doing that. When He sets His heart onto His people, it is a never-stopping, never-ending love that always goes out no matter what the depth. He will not quit. He will bring you home. He will not let you fail. That is the amazing promise of the Gospel, y'all. His heart is moved by your misery and your despair. And seeing Him moved this way for you is real power to live for Him each day of our lives. Y'all, the Gospel alone is our only source for real power, for snapping the power of sin in our life. I hope that you'll begin to believe this. Consider that an invitation to do so. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for this night. Thank You that You have loved us like this. Could it be that You would do that for us? I pray that You would help us to see in Jesus all that You have done for us. And we lift this up in Your name. Amen.